So this is Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the mighty high dwells. God is within her. She will not fail. God will help her break at, at break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see what, Lord, what the Lord has done, the desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Yeah, Lord, so we ask that you would take this ancient prayer and that you would bring it to life in our inner being, that somehow as we sit in this room together that you would do something in us like what you did in Brett on that snowy trail run this week, that you would give us your perspective, but more than that, that we would hear your voice, that, that the one who spoke creation into existence would also whisper into our ears individually today. So we make ourselves available to you now in Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. So I'm talking to my friend CJ, who's just a few months into sobriety, and he's telling me about this moment uh, in his AA group, and particularly a conversation with his sponsor. And he says, all right, so we get to step two. And step two turns out to be all about believing in a power that's greater than yourself and somehow communicating and depending on that power. And if you're unfamiliar with the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, it's got a whole lot of God language in it. And despite being originally based on the Bible and the teachings of Jesus, most 12-step groups have today replaced God language with the language of higher power for the sake of inclusivity into the program for all different types of people. But CJ's not into this part. He's not into the God part of it. So he tells his sponsor, Owen, he says, hey man, here's the deal. I want to get sober. I'm committed to the program, but I'm out on God. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm in for everything else, but please don't try to talk me into some sort of cosmic therapist that's going to help me say no to a gin and tonic. And maybe some of us feel like that. Teach us to pray. Sure, so long as by prayer we're talking exclusively about something that's happening within me, some kind of spiritual meditation, then I can get on board with that. There's been... an Eastern spiritual renaissance that's happened in the West lately, particularly among uh, the educated class of urban dwellers. So practice like Buddhist meditation or meditative emptying or yoga, even yoga that's accompanied by chanting in an unknown language to an unknown God, anything that helps me get into the elusive state of centeredness is on the table. So sure, if by prayer you're just talking about the Jesus version of all of those other forms of meditation, then I'm in. But actual communication with a very real relational divine being, a divine being that's intelligent enough to create me and everything that I see and experience, come on. 
If, if such a being exists, the likelihood that he or she or they would be at beck and call for conversation with me is pretty absurd. So a couple days later, uh, Owen calls up CJ as the workday is drawing to a close, and he says, I'm parked out in front of your place in my car. Come out and get in. Where are we going? Just get in the car, man. So they get in and they drive deep into Brooklyn and they park at an expired meter at Coney Island and the two of them get out and they walk on the beach together on a brisk November day and they sit down on the sand next to each other and they just look. Both of them watching the sunset over the hazy gray sky and watching the ocean pull in and out with the tides, feeling that brisk ocean breeze against their faces and cutting through their jackets. And they just sit there, not saying a word for a while. And eventually it was Owen who breaks the silence. And he just said, do you see anything out here more powerful than you? And CJ hesitates, thinking it might be a trick question, and then says, yeah? And he says, great, prayer starts there. He drove CJ where he wasn't going on his own to show him what he wasn't seeing for himself. Do you see anything here more powerful than you? In other words, can you see yourself, your tiny self, from God's massive perspective for just a moment? You see, Owen was introducing CJ to the stillness from which prayer naturally emerges. Prayer does not begin with us. It begins with God. And contrary to popular belief, prayer does not begin with speaking. It starts with seeing. To borrow a line from Philip Yancey, prayer is the act of seeing reality from God's point of view. So before we open our lips and say a single word to God, we have to discover the posture that prayer flows from effortlessly. Teach us to pray. That is the title of the teaching series and practice that we're giving ourselves to over the first 10 weeks of the new year. We started that practice last week with the acknowledgement that prayer is more practice than theory and the invitation to pray as you can over the next couple of months. And that's pretty essential context, so if you missed that, catch up on the podcast, you're going to need it as we go forward, but up for today is the way of seeing that opens our mouths in prayer. But for that, we're going to need the right sponsor. We're gonna need someone, a mentor in prayer, who can take us where we're not going on our own to help us see what we're not seeing on our own. And for that, we will turn to David, who's got more prayers recorded in the Bible than anyone else by a long shot. So if you haven't already, please open your Bible with me to Psalm chapter 46. Now, as always, I'm gonna go a whole lot of different places in scripture, primarily in the Psalms today. All the other places will be on the screen. But Psalm 46, our grounding and foundational text, we'll come back to again and again and again. I want you to follow along with me in your Bibles for that. So this is a psalm that's attributed to the sons of Korah. That is a shorthand title for the crew that David gathered together to host night and day prayer in his tabernacle. And from that community emerged this famous line, be still and know that I am God. Here is the starting place of prayer. Be still, know God, and know yourself. David's prayers are gonna guide us through those three themes. So first, be still. It sounds simple enough, right? 
But it's actually a whole lot more complicated than you think because the way of living that you and I have today called normal is actually historically abnormal and makes stillness nearly impossible. So I'm gonna borrow some research from our very good friend John Mark Comer to show you how we got here. Now, if you've been around Bridgetown for a while, the foundation I'm about to lay over the next couple of minutes is gonna be a familiar one to you, but I need you to stay with me because we're going to build on that familiar foundation in a new way. So uh, the historically abnormal but universally accepted modern Western lifestyle is largely the result of three groundbreaking inventions, the clock, the light bulb, and the iPhone. In 1370, the first public clock was set up in Germany. Historians point to that as the turning point between natural time and artificial time in history. Meaning up until then, people for the most part awoke with the sun's rising and went to bed with its settings. There was a rhythm to life with longer days in the summer and shorter days in the winter, which to be honest is probably how people made it through the winter before there was heat in every building. They just mostly slept through it. And then as of 1370, people start managing their time artificially. When that happens, time shifts from being a limit governing our lives to a resource to be used according to our individual agendas. That leads up to 1879 when Thomas Edison invented the light bulb, which uh, increased human productivity greatly and decreased human sleep time just as greatly. Uh, prior to the light bulb, the average American slept 11 to 11 and a half hours a night. As of 2013, the last Gallup research on that, that number's down to 6.8 hours a night. And I would assume that includes like my children, my toddlers who sleep, I think, 12 hours a night. So I don't know what that means for the average adult. Now with the increased potential for human productivity that all that lack of sleep offered us, technology took off. By the year 1960, central AC and heating, microwaves, dishwashers, and laundry machines were all common appliances in American homes. Around that same time, sociologists commonly started making predictions on what human life would look like by the time you and I are currently living in. And pretty much everyone was on the same page that this boom in time-saving technology would create a dramatic increase in leisure time and ease of life. A Senate subcommittee in 1967 jointly predicted that by 1985, the average American would work 22 hours a week for 27 weeks a year because of all of the leisure time that this new technology was going to free up for us. In reality, leisure time across the West decreased by 37% during that exact same time span. So they were right about this, that technology has continued to advance and save us a whole lot of time. What they were wrong about is how we would use that free time. And we have spent it on things other than deep soul level rest, a phenomenon that is most obviously exposed by the iPhone. Uh, when Apple released the first iPhone in 2007, among other things, they accidentally gave us a tracking device for how we are using our leisure time. And the average iPhone user touches his or her phone 2,617 times a day, staring at their screen for two and a half hours over 76 sessions. That is the average iPhone user, meaning it includes the boomer generation who still leave the little text digit sound on when they send a text message. So every time they send a message, you know what I'm talking about. If you, if you go to just millennials, then time spent on our phones doubles to over five hours a day. So instead of just slowing down to the degree that we'd spend half of our lives in leisure time, mental health professionals have coined the term hurry sickness, 
which is a behavioral pattern characterized by continual rushing and anxiousness. Does that sound familiar to you at all? In a society that prizes efficiency and productivity above all else, hurry is not an occasional necessity, it is the new normal. Be still. Not as simple as it sounds. The Christian philosopher Dallas Willard was once asked, what is the one thing a modern person could do to deepen their spiritual life and become more like Jesus? And after a long pause, he said, and you could probably help me with this one, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Hurry is the great enemy of spirituality in our day. Now that's interesting. Because I do wonder if you were asked, what is the great enemy of deepening your spiritual life? How many of us would answer, hurry? Michael Zigarelli of the Charleston University School of Business did a five-year study of 20,000 Christians in the U.S. and then identified busyness as the number one distraction from life with God. This is his own summary of his own research. It may be the case that one, Christians are assimilating to a culture of busyness, hurry, and overload, which leads to two, God becoming more marginalized in Christians' lives, which leads to three, a deteriorating relationship with God, which leads to four, Christians becoming even more vulnerable to adopting secular assumptions about how to live, which leads to five, more conformity to a culture of busyness, hurry, and overload, and then the cycle begins again. Does that sound familiar to you at all? His research goes on to conclude that statistically, the common professions most guilty for getting caught in this cycle of hurry are doctors, lawyers, and, wait for it, pastors. Not this pastor. Pastors like Gerald who are less familiar with the research. Now, my worry is that at this point, you'd think I'm talking to you about emotional health, and and I do really want you to be emotionally healthy. But what's at stake here is far more than just your ability to stay centered, your spiritual life, your relationship with God, your ability to perceive true reality is all kept with a very low ceiling if we do not learn how to be still. Carl Jung, the Swiss psychiatrist whose research is the basis of the Myers-Briggs personality test, said, hurry isn't of the devil, it is the devil. The modern-day sage Richard Foster said, in contemporary society, our adversary, which is a biblical title for the devil, our adversary majors in three things, noise, hurry, and crowds. If he can keep us engaged in muchness and manyness, he will rest satisfied. And a a journalist once asked the theologian Thomas Merton to diagnose the leading spiritual disease of our time, and Merton responded with a one-word answer, efficiency. See, we tend to attribute the complexity and busyness of our lives to a false culprit, right? We blame it on our environment. It's the pace of our cities and, and our workload and our office culture and our current demands on our time. Those are the chief causes of my frenetic pace. But the Quaker missionary Thomas Kelly made a different observation after he spent a full year slowing down and simplifying in a 12-month sabbatical in Hawaii. What he noticed is that the madcap, feverish life he knew on the mainland, he took with him to the island. You see, the truth is your inner life is not a mirror image of your outer environment. If anything, the opposite is true. We produce an outer environment that mirrors our inner life. 
Kelly writes this, strained by the very mad pace of our daily outer burdens, we are further strained by an inward uneasiness because we have hints that there is a way of life vastly richer and deeper than all this hurried existence, a life of unhurried serenity and peace and power. If only we could slip over into that center, if only we could find the silence which is the source of sound. So there you have a philosopher, an academic, a psychiatrist, an author, a monk, and a missionary who are all circling around the same thing. Hurry is the great enemy of, spiritual, of the spiritual life in our day. I really do want you to be emotionally healthy, but I'm talking to you about something so much more serious than how to unburden your overloaded schedule. I'm talking to you about your spiritual vitality. See, when David prays, be still, he's not taking you on a self-care retreat. He is undermining the most ancient conspiracy. All the way back at the beginning of the story, when Adam and Eve take and eat that forbidden fruit from that one forbidden tree, a conspiracy unfolds. Adam and Eve sin, and then what do they do? They hide, make clothes, argue, and blame. They deal with sin through what Foster called muchness and manyness, through what Zigarelli called busyness, through what Willard diagnosed as hurry. And ever since then, we've always found it easy to ignore the truth so long as we never stop moving. In the fall of humanity, we were infected with the disease or mastered the art of hurry, of never being still. Jesus once spoke to a rich young ruler who was wildly successful at a young age and he gave him these instructions. Sell everything you got, give it to the poor, then come and follow me. And I wonder if Jesus was recognizing something similar to Willard who said you must ruthlessly eliminate this from your life. I wonder if this rich young ruler had become so infected, uh, if, if the ancient conspiracy had buried itself so deep in his inner life in this one particular way that the only thing that would uproot it is the full detox, ruthless elimination. But most of us, if we're really honest, kind of think Jesus is overdoing it here. Like, that does seem a touch dramatic. I mean, come on, Doc, is this level of prescription really necessary for what I'm dealing with? And so we tend to import prayer into our very hurried lives and offer lip service to Jesus while conforming to our culture remains our one true God. Honestly, is prayer upending the way you would naturally live otherwise, or are you trying to use prayer to sponsor the way you would naturally live otherwise? Is prayer to Jesus remaking you from the inside out or is prayer your way of asking Jesus to give you a holy boost so that you can go on doing your thing? We can ignore the truth so long as we never stop moving. And so we end up not as good, or I'm sorry, we end up as good people but as people who are not very deep. Not bad, just busy. Not immoral, just distracted. Not lacking in soul, just preoccupied. Not disdaining depth, just never doing the things to get us there, says Ronald Rollheiser. Now look, I know how important you are. I know that you've got a tongue going on at work and demands at home and people that depend on you and a Netflix queue that needs attention and a social media personality the internet cannot live without. 
And obviously I'm making light of those things on some level, but I really do know that there are real demands on all of our time that really do matter, real balls that we're keeping juggling. But can I just remind you that David wrote this be still prayer as the leader of a nation in a world of tribal warfare. I go to bed at night worried about a to-do lists. David went to bed at night worried if the enemy camped in the hill country might charge. And still he prioritized and practiced the stillness of silent prayer. A habit of stillness that allowed him to slow down long enough to see reality from God's point of view. Be still. It comes from the Latin vacate, from which we get the English word vacation. The invitation of prayer is this, take a vacation. Stop playing God over your own life for just a moment. Release control. Return to your natural place in the created order. Rest in God's fatherly presence. Be still. Prayer starts there. But that is only the beginning. Be still. And then know God. Uh, What were you doing on August 21st, 2017? probably don't remember just by the date. So let me try to jog your memory. That was the last, uh, or the most recent time that there was a highly publicized total solar eclipse from our vantage point down here on Earth. It was huge news. And if you were in Oregon at the time, you probably had a pretty good view of it. There, there were people that organized viewing parties. Some took the day off work. Others just went about their Monday routine while the rest of us looked at the sky. Personally, I was really excited to see it, but not excited enough to prepare. I I kind of missed the whole news on if you don't pre-purchase these special glasses, you're going to go blind trying to look at the thing up in the sky. So when it actually happened, I was living in New York City. I was walking down 23rd Street on the west side of Manhattan. And 23rd Street runs right through the heart of Chelsea, which is home to New York City's upscale art galleries. But it's also a transportation hub that's close enough to Times Square to attract chain stores and tourists and a whole bunch of hyper-important, perpetually angry, like usually grumpy New Yorkers that are trying to get from A to B, and you, tourists, are in my way. It's, it's where those worlds meet. So that's where I was when the solar eclipse happened. And I was one of those, it was one of those New York moments that I will never, ever forget. Because people are stopped all over the sidewalk and they're passing these glasses back and forth. And as it turned out, it didn't actually matter who had prepared and who hadn't. Everyone was sharing this moment of wonder with whoever else wanted a look. And everyone reacted like little kids. They were gawking and talking about it. Sophisticated, busy New Yorkers were returning to their inner child on the sidewalk on 23rd Street. That was most of us. But it was not all of us. There was another group who was so annoyed with those of us who were clogging up the sidewalk to stare at the sun. And they were trying to get by us, but they were frustrated that they were having to weave through this crowd in the middle of their busy day. And they used every form of communication except for words. You know, they grunting and scoffing, kind of intentionally giving you a little shoulder bump as they're going by to let you know they were there. They're saying in every way they could without saying it, I'm very, very important, and you're in my way. And that annoyance was ironic because of perspective. Because if you reverse the perspective, and instead of being on 23rd Street looking up, you're from the solar eclipse looking down, things look a whole lot different. 
I mean, just consider the fact that if the Milky Way galaxy uh, were the entire continent of North America, then our solar system would fit inside of a coffee cup. I'm talking about everything you learned in fifth grade about the solar system, like the sun and moon and the nine planets. Yes, nine planets, because Pluto still matters to me. It, our solar system is just one little neighborhood among a predicted 100 billion neighborhoods in our universe. Right now, while I'm talking, there are two Voyager spacecrafts which are cruising toward the edge of the solar system at 100,000 miles per hour. They've been doing that for over 30 years and have traveled over 9 billion miles with no end in sight. When NASA sends communication to one of those Voyagers, traveling at the speed of light, it takes 13 hours to get there. Scientists estimate that to send a light speed message to the edge of the universe would take 15 billion years to arrive. So yes, Chelsea art dealer, you are very important. But in perspective with what the rest of us are looking at down here, you're also impossibly young, urgently expiring, and unbelievably small. You see, you and I, we, we tend to see the world from behind our own two eyes. And from that minuscule perspective, we convince ourselves that, uh, that we are or we should be in control, directing our lives and ordering our future. Be still and know that I am God. Not you. I am God. Prayer is the act of seeing reality from God's point of view. Psalm 8, another of David's prayers, marvels just at this simple wonder of perspective. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. And all of our scientific discoveries in the thousands of years since this simple prayer was written have only confirmed its wisdom. In this vast expanse, who is this God who would concern himself with the likes of me. See, there's a good kind of small. It comes with wonder at the God who is big enough to paint the stars across the sky, but also loving enough to concern himself with me and the events of my day and the emotional fluctuations I feel as I go through it. The great scandal and the most important work of prayer is simply to let ourselves be loved by God. And that starts with seeing. I love cities. Gritty, fast-paced, diverse urban centers have been home to me for the better half of my life. It was Chicago and then New York and now it's Portland. I feel more at home on a crowded sidewalk than I ever have uh, on a rural road or in a suburban strip mall. I love cities. And still, like anywhere else, there's pros and cons. You know, the way I see it, one of the one most obvious drawback to living in a city is the sky above. It's the fact that unless you get a particularly clear night, the stars are significantly less visible, sometimes completely invisible, from the city street below. And that's because the bright lights of the city tend to drown out the heavenly lights that are above us. And isn't there profound symbolism in that? That the artificial lights of our making drown out the heavenly lights of our God's making. The stars are still there, but the city, the lights of our offices that stay on late, the bright advertisements that vie for our attention, the yellow glow of so many different apartment windows, it all works together to darken the sky that is above us, that reminds us of our smallness. 
It all works together to convince me that the world from behind my tiny little perspective, that my agenda, my day, and the fruition of my plans is all there is. We found a way to darken the stars, a way to live where we can pretend that all I see is all there is. City dwellers like me and maybe like you, we are in danger of missing what David saw, our own lives against the backdrop of something bigger. It's just another way to spiral into that same old ancient conspiracy. You see, Adam and Eve sin, they fall for a deception. You will be like God. And what started in them has never stopped. From there it went to the Tower of Babel and to King Saul and to the Pharisaical priesthood and to the CEO of your company and to me and to you. We are all addicted to ego and control. We are all prone to drown out God, to keep on moving, to go about our lives like we are at the center. Stillness is the quiet space where God migrates from the periphery of our lives back to the center. And from a life with God at the center, prayer is the natural overflow. I don't know if you've ever read the book of Job, but the whole thing is basically just like eavesdropping. It's just one man trying to sort out his great questions and angst with his three closest friends. And together they just sort of run in circles for chapter after chapter after chapter. And that is because bringing the deepest parts of ourselves to community only and not also to God in prayer will comfort in a real way, but it will never heal all the way. And so many of us, even many of us that pray often, we go about our lives in conversation with God without ever breaching our deepest pain points, our realest, truest angst, and our most lingering questions. We keep those insecurities and, and those um, scars hidden even from God. And then finally, 38 chapters in, Job brings this conversation that he's been content to run in circles with his friends with directly to God. He prays. And God's response is just a series of questions. He asked Job things like, where were you when the stars first sang out? Where were you when the angels gasped as I painted the whole world into being? And as God poses these questions, Job's perspective begins to shift. He begins to see his own life from God's point of view. He remembers who God is. And that begins a process of healing so deep in him that we're told that the second half of his life was richer than the first. So here's the foundation for prayer. Be still. And then remember who God is. But there's one more essential piece. And that is to know yourself. And Psalm 146, smack in the middle of a whole bunch of poetry about praising the greatness of God, the psalmist drops the record-scratching line. Put not your trust in princes and the son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Now, at first glance, it seems woefully out of place. Like someone accidentally took a line from a eulogy and put it in the middle of a praise anthem. But then seen from the right perspective, it's prayer. You see, cities like Portland are increasingly havens for the young. Our culture celebrates the first half of life. We celebrate toned bodies and stylized wardrobes and career upward mobility and exciting weekend plans. We try to drag that first half of life on as long as we possibly can. In a world like ours, the elderly, or a city like ours, the elderly are often a forgotten breed. And that's why during my 12 years in New York City prior to the last few months, my favorite view of the Manhattan skyline was always the one from Calvary Cemetery in Queens. 
I was always strangely comforted when I looked across all of these tombstones at the city skyline beyond them. That's because every one of those stones represents someone who was living fast and making plans and willing their preferred future, and now he or she is just a memory. And this city's filled with new people that are living even faster, making even more plans and willing brand new agendas. I can remember once sitting in the backseat of a cab when I was on my way home from the airport and I had way too much to do and not nearly enough time and I looked out the taxi window to see the view of that city across all of those tombstones. This view that reminds me that everything that I'm exhausted about and stressed about, every conflict that's replaying in the back of my mind, every anxiety churning in my stomach, every preoccupation I've got today about tomorrow morning, all of it one day will cease. When his breath departs, on that very day, his plants perish. See, those tombstones, they're a reminder of how temporary I am, how temporary we all are. Psalm 39, another of David's prayers, show me, Lord, my life's end and the number of my days. Let me know how fleeting my life is. You've made my hands a mere handbreadth. The span of my years is as nothing before you. Everyone is but a breath, even those who seem secure. That's what he prayed. Now, by now, you know what David's doing when he prays. He's undermining the ancient conspiracy. The lie whispered in the ear of Adam and Eve just before they plucked the fruit was what? You will not surely die. That is a lie that has wrought and wreaks havoc on the individual soul and the social order beyond us. So to pray, show me, Lord, how fleeting my life is, is not self-deprecating depression. It is self-aware victory. It is to turn our fast lives into stillness, to busy our minds into solitude, or I'm sorry, our busy minds to be stilled into solitude. That's an act of rebellion against the curse that has infected the world and infected the air that we breathe. You see, when we live in constant noise, we lose perspective, we forget our mortality, and the consequences of that forgetfulness are of the furthest reaching variety. Live like this world and this life is all you've got and you will lose yourself trying to be everything for everybody. Because if busyness proves my importance, then I've got to stay busy. And if wealth is a sign of freedom, then I need to make more money. And if knowing people makes me feel like I matter, then I need to make more contacts. It's a scarcity mindset, a constant state of fear that causes us to accumulate life rather than living it. Pretending you're eternal is a miserable dehumanizing lie. It's the original lie. And when we forget our mortality, we forget who we are, but when we remember our mortality, we recover who we are. See, David was pleading with God to remind him that he's temporary, not because he's depressed, but because that's what showed him his true value. When I pray, when I see myself as I really am, I behold myself from God's perspective. And I behold not only my own smallness, but I also behold how truly valuable I am to God. David goes on to pray things like, God keeps count of my tossings while I'm asleep at night. He collects all of my tears and bottles them up forever. God's good thoughts toward me outnumber the grains of sand on all the world's beaches. Where on earth do you get the moxie to pray like that? He's free enough to admit that he's not in control, that he's not all-powerful, that he's not enough, and he doesn't have to be. But he's not wallowing in his lack. He's celebrating it. He's not driven by fear to accumulate. He's living. 
You see, when you see how great God is and how fleeting you are, you also see how profoundly you matter. That the creator of the world has time for you. That the creator is interested in you. That the creator delights in you. That the creator of the world has hidden redemption in you. Only when you see who you really are can you also see how profoundly you matter. And there's an untouchable kind of freedom in that realization. Here's Psalm 112, one last prayer from David. I just can't resist this one. Surely the righteous will never be shaken. They will be remembered forever. They will have no fear of bad news. Their hearts are steadfast, trusting in the Lord. No fear of bad news. No fear running through their gut when they see that name in their email inbox. No fear buzzing around their idle mind. No anxiety about next week on Sunday evening. Can you even imagine that kind of freedom? Where does it come from? Be still and know that I am God. Only by knowing him do we truly come to know ourselves. Near the end of the Old Testament, after the time of David, Israel was conquered by Babylon and they were forced to live in a foreign land, in a foreign culture, steeped in a foreign reality. And during that time, rabbis, they took David's prayers and they translated them into Aramaic, the, land, the language of their captors, so that a generation born in another culture could remember who they really are. Not products of this foreign place and this foreign culture, but, but products of a truer chosenness. Could David's prayers do the same thing for us? Children of an eternal loving God living in our days in a city that is built on a foundation of status and performance and perception. Could ancient prayers like these remind us who we really are? So is there a, a practice that can help us to slow down and remember who God is and remember who I really am? A practice that can move our hearts in this direction of holy stillness and calm our bodies into a posture from which prayer flows forth naturally? Yes. And at Bridgetown, we believe that church happens in at least two essential spaces. Church around a stage, that's what we're doing here on Sundays, and church around a table, that's why we gather midweek in Bridgetown communities. And if you're not in a community, the way into one is through Basics, which is coming in just a couple of weeks. Stay tuned for more info on that. We would love for you to jump in, but for all of you who are in communities, the Be Still Prayer practice is up on our teaching page of our website right now, and I want to invite you not only to practice this in homes in your communities this week together, but to make the stillness of prayer a practice every day over the next couple of months as we continue to make our way through this teaching series, to allow that to be a foundational place in your life from which we can build. Now, I want to close here for today. Almost everyone who recites Psalm 46 stops where I've been stopping. Be still and know that I am God. But that's not actually where David and the sons of Korah stopped. Be still and know that I am God. Oh, what do you think follows? Be still and you'll be filled with peace. Be still and lay down your heavy burden. Be still and you'll find rest for your soul. All that would make sense logically. But what the prayer says is this. Be still, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. 
That is the destination of prayer. It's the promise that we become aware of in holy stillness. Exalted in the earth means that God's presence becomes reality. It becomes plainly visible. It means that love breaks out everywhere there's hate and kindness floods competition and sweeps it away, that peace swallows up fear, that joy washes away jealousy, that self-control calms rage and breaks the chains of unwanted behavior. Everyone wants this. Everyone wants God to be exalted in the earth, even those who would never use that sort of language to describe it. Here's the way God promises to get all of that done. Be still and know that I am God. You see, the unexpected ending to Psalm 46 is learn to be still and pray and the world around you gets renewed. Because from that place, you become a person of love poured out like a drink offering because you're a person who's forever being filled by the fountain of life himself. Historically, in the Russian church, a name was given those who devoted their whole lives to still contemplative prayer. They're called pustaniki. And these radical contemplatives withdrew into the wilderness to live in isolation and a perpetual state of solitude. Not, Not a one night overnight solitude retreat, a perpetual state of solitude. And yet pustaniki is a term in Russian which means being with everybody. That seems like an odd name for people that are choosing a lifetime of solitude, doesn't it? Well, as a part of their commitment, they would embrace a life of intentional stillness, but they equally embraced a life of interruptibility. The Pustaniki also refused to put a latch on their doors uh, to their homes. They remained constantly available to anyone and to everyone, and they made the need of their neighbor their highest priority whenever it showed up. They were intentional and interruptible. And you know, Jesus was really intentional about his practice of stillness. He began his ministry with a 40-day solitude retreat. He slipped away from the crowd late at night and early in the morning on a number of occasions. He retreated into the company of the Father in the face of both praise and criticism. In many ways, Jesus was a contemplative. But he also allowed himself to be interrupted by Bartimaeus on the way to Jerusalem to cleanse the temple and to care for the hemorrhaging woman and to be interrupted to have dinner with Zacchaeus. Jesus was intentional and interruptible. And there's a a word for that way of living, unhurried. See, in the end, stillness and prayer is profoundly missional. Hurry is the great enemy of the spiritual life. Why? Because hurry kills love. It's because hurry lies behind our agitation and anger and self-centeredness. It's because hurry blinds our eyes to the world uh, so we can't truly see that he or she is brother and sister. God has to break our attachments to this world so that we can truly love this world. God has to break our attachments to needing something from you, needing you to affirm me, to think something about me, to give something to me so that I can truly give myself to you. And the place that work happens is prayer. Stillness in the end is profoundly missional. And prayer is not a self-care retreat. It begins in isolation, but it ends in being with everybody. Stillness before God is what transforms us into unhurried love. It is in the stillness of of silent prayer that God will turn over the soil of your heart. It is when you still your busy body and arrive at a quiet place before God and that he takes all of your disordered desires and untangles all of your uh, distorted attachments and your codependence and he 
codependencies and he transforms them into love that can be given away to the world. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. How? How does that happen? How do we see the kingdom come in Portland as it is in heaven? Be still and know that I am God. So friends, I want you just to picture yourself on a beach. It's a brisk day in November. You can smell the seaweed in the ocean air and the waves come in and out with the tide and the brisk wind blows against your face and it cuts through your jacket. You see anything here more powerful than you? Great. Prayer starts there. <laughs>